Hello lovelies and welcome back. I've got an amazing episode for you today about chronic fatigue and we have a special guest. Her name is Dr. Vanessa and she is a naturopathic physician who has been an amazing, incredible support to me through my chronic illness. Naturopathic physicians diagnose and treat health problems with nutritional and lifestyle advice, herbal medicines, and natural therapies. Dr. Vanessa's specific specialties include hormone imbalances, chronic conditions, mental health concerns and addictions, autoimmune disease, cancer, and biohacking. Because we have so much amazing information to share with you and because maintaining focus can be pretty difficult when you have chronic fatigue, we're going to split this information across multiple episodes. As always, the content warning for this episode includes my foul mouth, and today I'm joined in my foul language with Dr. Vanessa. My mom always warned me that if you have friends with bad habits, you're likely to fall into those habits as well. Well, sorry, mom. I bet you didn't think I was going to be the one corrupting others. Hello, lovelies, and welcome back to another episode of Not a Floating Head. We're doing something a bit different today. We are trying video along with our audio. So if you are the type of person that wants to watch a podcast on YouTube or listen to the podcast through YouTube, we will have some video up uh, of my interview with Dr. Vanessa, a very special guest whom I'm super excited to introduce today. Today's topic is chronic fatigue, inflammation, and mental health. So the title of our podcast is Why the Fuck Am I So Tired When I'm Doing Everything Right? So we're going to answer some of those questions for you today. Hey, Dr. Robin, it's so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the on the podcast. Um, so my name is Dr. Vanessa Ingram. I'm a naturopathic medical doctor. And so that's a little bit different from you know our traditional naturopaths that we have here in New Zealand. Um, so basically our training in North America is we're much more like integrative um, GPs or um, primary care physicians in that, you know, we're able to diagnose, prescribe medications in certain states. And we, do, we tend to do a lot with, um, you know, high dose nutrient therapy, sometimes intravenous. And so it's, it could be a little bit different than what we're used to here. But more importantly, you know, just like, you know, a lot of um, traditionally minded naturopaths, we're looking at the, we're looking at our clients and our patients as a whole person. You know, we're trying to get to the root cause of symptoms and we really embrace the whole idea of, you know, doctor as teacher. So we're all about education. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled to be here today. Um, I love, you know, I love teaching and I love sharing what I know. So thank you so much, um, Robin. Awesome. And, and for you guys, Dr. V is an amazing teacher. I've learned so much from her. And two things I want to say real quick is one, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Vanessa and I, um, you're from the Bahamas or you're from the U.S.? I can't remember which oh, one. Originally from the Bahamas. Yeah. So is originally from the Bahamas. I'm originally from the U.S. And but we're both in New Zealand currently. So for those of you that are listening to the podcast, um, when she says over here, she's referring to New Zealand. Um, and also I just, I completely forgot to introduce how I met Dr. Vanessa. And so I'll just take a moment to do that. Um, I will also share my story in a few minutes when we kind of get into a little bit more about chronic fatigue, but basically I joined an amazing CrossFit gym in New Zealand and was sharing with one of my favorite coaches ever, Emma, about my own kind of medical issues and what I had been going through and chronic fatigue and exhaustion and basically my chronic illness journey. And I had seen naturopath after naturopath after naturopath, which again, I'll 
get into in my story. And none of them were very helpful. And so when I was talking to Emma, she said, I have, I got the person for you. Dr. Vanessa is amazing. She treats most of us here at CrossFit and boy, was she right. So that is how I got introduced to Dr. Vanessa. And she has dramatically helped me and not only me, but we've shared some patients and had some wonderful successes um, with that. So I, again, I'm just thrilled to have her uh, here today. Um, without further ado, do you want to kind of, do you want us to get into what chronic fatigue is? Would you like me to kind of start there? Absolutely. And I, I think it's so important to just acknowledge that, you know, this idea of chronic fatigue and fatigue syndromes in general are an actual medical condition. You know, a lot of the podcast, obvi podcast obviously is called Not a Floating Head. And, you know, it's so, so heartbreaking for me, you know, to have, have patients who come in who have been to their GPs, who have been to other practitioners, who basically just looked at, you know, traditional or standard blood work and said everything's fine. But, you know, these people are suffering. And, you know, this idea of chronic fatigue is a real thing. So let's see. Yeah, let's definitely get into that. Yes, absolutely. First, for those of you who may not know, chronic fatigue, also known as, and give me a second to pronounce this, myalgic encephalomyelitis is a disease characterized as a neurological illness. The term myalgic encephalomyelitis means pain in the muscles and inflammation in the brain and spinal cord. Yeah, no, and I just, I just think it's really important to reiterate the point that you know, while a lot of, you know, general practitioners may not be that familiar with this condition, it is really important to understand it's not just in your head, it's deeply entrenched in your body, you know, underlined, underlined by your immune system function, your hormones, you know, your um, exposures, and, you know, to take it really seriously. Yes, you are not a floating head. All right. Um, also, I just want to throw in kind of what uh, some of the symptoms may be, and forgive me guys, if you're watching on video, I am just kind of making sure that I read my notes on this because I don't want to miss any potential symptoms. So basically because chronic fatigue syndrome is a very complex multi-system chronic illness, many other symptoms will occur and must be present for diagnosis. These include, but aren't necessarily limited to, Problems with thinking, concentrating, memory loss, vision, clumsiness, muscle twitching or tingling, sometimes called neurocognitive problems, disrupted sleep, pain or aches in the muscles, joints or head, a drop in blood pressure, feeling dizzy or pale, palpitations, increased heart rate or shortness of breath with exertion on with exertion or on standing. So let me say that again, increased heart rate or shortness of breath with activity exertion or upon standing. Allergies or sensitivities to light, smells, touch, sound, foods, chemicals, and medications. Gastrointestinal changes, such as nausea, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, which a lot of times people will think is IBS. Urinary problems, sore throat, tender lymph nodes, and a flu-like feeling. Marked weight change, extreme loss or gain, either one, it's different depending on the person inability and inability to cope with temperature changes. A person's symptoms will fluctuate or can fluctuate over short periods of time, even from hour to hour. So as you can see, this is so much more than just fatigue. I just think it's really important to, for people to remember too, often, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, put a lot of symptoms together, you know, we'll have one thing, maybe a little, you know, weird feeling in our fingers or lightheadedness when we stand up and then some gut changes. And it's really important to kind of think of our body as a whole and not kind of try to diagnose ourselves based on one or two symptoms. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that is important. And also what's really important that we want you to know today is that the CDC estimates that 1 million people in the U.S. have chronic fatigue syndrome and as many as 17 to 24 million people worldwide suffer with chronic fatigue syndrome. And I do mean suffer. Additionally, a recent UK biobank study places the worldwide estimate at 30 million people. 30 million people, guys. So chances are that you or someone you know may be experiencing and trying to cope with chronic fatigue. And I think also it's also important to remember that, you know, symptoms, you know, they don't always end up or they don't always start kind of severely. And so it's really important to take things seriously, you know, at the onset. So, you know, if you have a practitioner or a doctor who's not kind of looking into or investigating some, you know, random seeming symptoms that you're having and not taking them seriously, you know, it is important to kind of keep keep pressing and kind of keep investigations open. Absolutely. And hopefully as um, Vanessa goes more into this stuff, we will give you guys ideas of actually how to track these symptoms and what, you know, what will help you when you go to the doctor to discuss these symptoms. Also lovelies, within those symptoms, there is going to be a variation in the, Vanessa, how did you say it a second ago? That was so good. Severity, the severity of your symptoms. Some symptoms may be more severe. Some symptoms may be less severe and you can't compare your symptoms to symptoms that someone else may be having or experiencing. Also within chronic fatigue syndrome, there are many subtypes within this spectrum, which means that treatment like therapy is not a one size fits all approach. Applying one type of treatment for one subtype can be very damaging to another subtype, which I think um, Vanessa will probably get into more as she's actually talking about what some of the things that you need to look at and consider if you think that you may have chronic fatigue syndrome. Would you say that's accurate, Vanessa? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the term chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, it, it really describes kind of the result of, of kind of what's going on and everyone's, everyone's causes of why they got to that point are going to be a little bit different. You know, some people's maybe um, more underlined by, you know, toxic exposure, mold in the environment, or some kind of inflammatory syndrome versus someone else that could be more driven by something like kind of stress and hormone imbalance. So you know, in that, in that sense, you know, treatment could be very different because we're working on the underlying causes. So let me take a second and ask Vanessa, What are some of the things that we think or know can cause chronic fatigue syndrome? Yeah, so chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, is underlied by this idea of of inflammation or or immune system just being a little bit overactive or, you know, not not responding um, appropriately. And a lot of the things that kind of drive that immune system dysregulation or, you know, imbalance are things like latent infections, you know, things like Epstein-Barr, CMV, herpes type infections. You know, these things tend to live in our body and if they're not cleared completely, they can kind of be, be in silent mode and kind of reactivate, causing the immune system to be quite confused. You know, other things that are that, you know, I see a lot in my practice are things like, you know, different um, environmental toxicant exposures. So things like, you know, pesticide residues, things on food, um, things in our personal care products and cleaning products. You know, a lot of us are you know, exquisitely sensitive to some of these um, chemicals, which actually disrupt our cells ability to make energy. Mm. Um, there's also another big one is, you know, heavy metal um, exposure. So things like cadmium, lead, mercury, you know, all of these things kind of mess up the way our cells produce energy again. In New Zealand, one, one that I see quite a bit is, um, you know, mold exposure. 
So about one in three or one in four people will be just genetically a little bit or very sensitive to mold in the environment. And for these people, um, when when they're they're breathing in mold or they're living in moldy environments, their immune system just gets switched on, and that just drives this chronic low-grade inflammation, like a slow-burning fire that just kind of interferes with their body's ability to make energy. Yeah. Um, of course, of other obvious things we always need to consider are things like nutritional deficiencies, being low in certain vitamins and minerals that are needed for energy production. Um, and of course, you know, tying onto that, our gastrointestinal health. So a lot of us have heard of, you know, this idea of the gut microbiome, but you know, what a lot of us don't realize is we have about 10 times as many bacterial cells that are us than we have human cells. So, you know, the, the balance of bacteria in our gut um, actually interact with our immune system. And when that's a little bit out of whack from our diet, um, from our stress levels, you know, that can also spur on this idea of in chronic low-grade inflammation that can be underlying chronic fatigue um, syndrome. Of course, honorable mentions, again, you know, we have our hormone balance, you know, for women, obviously, you know, we have, you know, our, 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 you know, sex hormones, but another big one is our thyroid function. You know, our, our thyroid has a lot to do with our metabolic rate. Um, and then we have our, our stress hormones or our adrenal hormones, and these interact with our thyroid hormones as well as our sex hormones. And altogether, if that like hormonal symphony isn't, isn't, if everyone's not playing the right tune, that can also upset the immune system and kind of lead or, you know, exacerbate chronic fatigue syndrome. Those are, those are kind of the main ones, I think. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And just, just really quick, quickly, Robin, one resource I really want to just mention to everyone that you can, um, you, everyone has access to is so when we're, when, ex, when we're exposed to, you know, things like mold in our environment or certain, um, certain heavy metals and things like that, it can cause us, it can cause this idea of neuroinflammation or inflammation in the, in the brain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from anatomy, we know that the eyes are really just projections of the brain. And so basically we can get swelling in the brain and then swelling in the, the optic nerve. And there's a really interesting way we can test this. It's called um, testing visual contrast sensitivity. And this is basically an online vision test you can do. And it's not diagnostic, but it, but it is a nice screen to tell you if you should kind of pursue this line of thinking. Okay. And so if you go to a website called uh, www.vcstest.com. So it's visual <laughs> contrast sensitivity. Got it. So sorry, say that again, because I interrupted you. <laughs> uh, sorry, I get very excited. It's a VCS uh, test, a visual contrast sensitivity test.com. You can log in, you can do this online test. It can basically tell you if, you know, there's a, you know, if, if based on, you know, the people who've done the test, if you're likely to have this little bit of um, inflammation that's showing up in the, that's messing up your ability to discern um, visual contrast. And if you should pursue this idea of, um, you know, neuroinflammation due to mold or um, metals a little bit further. And is that, that's specific to metals and mold, or is that other things that could be causing that neuroinflammation as well? No, it's not specific, but it, but it is a test um, for, for just um, basically uh, CNS inflammation or inflammation in that, in this uh, central nervous system. So it would be a, so basically what I'm hearing you say is that that could be a potential, is it free? Is it something you can do free or is it relatively it's, expensive? You know, I think it's $14. You have to donate to the, um, the foundation. It's a research foundation. So that's, and again, it's not diagnostic, it's just a screen. Yeah. So $14 for kind of a precursor leading up to a potential diagnosis, but that's pretty, that's pretty freaking affordable. $14 is pretty decent, <laughs> right? And if it, it do, do you think that a GP or a primary care doctor is going to actually look at that? Or do you think they're going to 
think that you went off the rails and did Dr. Google and they're going to throw that out the window? Um, most general practitioners, unless they're kind of familiar with kind of Lyme disease, uh, mold illness, and kind of chronic fatigue, they may not be familiar with it. But it, but it's very research backed. Um, it's okay. it's based on the work by Dr. Schumacher, who's um, one of the experts in mold. Okay. And you go to the website. There's a lot of information there, and it's, like I said, it's a good screen, not diagnostic. But when we get into like actually testing for you know urinary mycotoxins or mold exposure in the urine or heavy metals, you know that can be up in the you know five, six, seven hundred dollar range. So right. Right. And if, if someone's consistently testing negative on that test, it would make me as a physician much less likely to do some of the expensive testing. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important is that some of there are things that we I say we meaning you <laughs> can do with your patients before, you know, possibly before you get to those real expensive tests that people may have to save up for, because obviously not everyone is privileged enough to be able to just, you know, spend seven hundred dollars on on this testing, but if they've got the $14 and they see that they're not really within that range, if they're bringing this to you, then you would focus on other things rather than wasting money going down that line of, of thinking. So the $14 is, would actually be uh, a, a really good investment in that sense. Absolutely. And, you know, we should never, you know, base any kind of testing or diagnosis or anything on, you know, one test. Right. It is, you know, taking it's just gathering more information and then deciding kind of where to go with that information. So, you know, looking at, you know, maybe tests like the visual contrast sensitivity, looking at blood work, taking into account kind of symptoms and chronicity of symptoms. So when they're arising, you know, if someone's always, you know, if they're better when they go on vacation to Bali every, I mean, obviously there's many reasons, right. you know, if they're always better when they're not at home, you know, that would be another tip off. So, you know, it's kind of taking everything in a holistic, in a holistic way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a really important point is that we're looking again, you like me treat people as a whole, not as a floating head. So you're taking all of the symptoms, the timing, you know, kind of environment, stress levels, situational um, stressors, all of that and looking at that picture. And I actually think this is a good place to say that this is a big difference between working with an, a doctor of naturopath versus a GP or a primary care physician in that unfortunately a primary care or GP is limited to about 15 minutes per visit. And so they're not going to have time to get into all of that. And that's where we're not saying don't go to your GP. We're certainly not saying that, but by working with your GP, as well as a doctor of nature path, you can kind of get a, a better picture that then when you're ready to go to the GP, you've kind of done that work with the doctor of nature path supporting you that gives a more complete picture to the GP. I think that can be, for me, that's been really helpful because obviously I see you and I have a GP. And that's one of the things that has been super helpful is bringing, knowing exactly what I want to hone in on when I'm at the GP's office. So I'm not spending 15 minutes giving my whole background and then com the completely miss what's going on. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, you know, supporting someone's health, it really should be a team-based based approach. You know, everyone kind of knows what their specialty is and we're all helping each other and communicating hopefully openly to kind of best serve the, the person in front of us. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what we hope. That's what, that's what our goals are. <laughs> I, I know you might've been in this position, but you know, as a practitioner, as well as, you know, a patient, nothing really fucking pisses me off more than when someone comes to me, you know, they're obviously exhausted. They're struggling with their health, but they've been to kind of their, their GP or, you know, their regular doctor 
and they're told everything is fine. And, you know, so they've run maybe some, some basic or standard blood work and, you know, sent them on their way. And I think, you know, first of all, it's so important to acknowledge, you know, the experience of the person, because as soon as we dismiss or, you know, we're not listened to that, that activates the stress response and that kind of drives, drives illness even further. You know, the second thing to really take into account is this idea of, of standard blood work and, um, you know, and just really understanding that what's, what's normal or, you know, what, what normal is, is not necessarily what healthy or optimal is, you know, for instance, um, you know, reference ranges are general are basically just the averages of, of everyone who's taken that blood test in that area. So, on you know, the range is also on that day and time, isn't it? On, on that day and within a certain exactly. time. Exactly. So, I mean, the analogy I like to use is if you think of your whole, if you think of you or your body as a whole ocean, you know, the blood work is like taking a cup of water at, or taking a glass, a glass and going down to the beach, you know, at a random beach in New Zealand, taking a sample and saying, this cup of water is representative of the entire ocean where, you know, we're, we're not taking into account, you know, what time it was, what the tide was doing, you know, what, you know, what potential pollution there could have been in the ocean at that time, because what boats went past. And so you're the same. So, you know, looking at blood work and saying it's normal, we need to take into, into the context of, you know, everything else that's going on. Yeah. Then, so I just want to, I, I just want to, cause I think this is so important and this was mind blowing for me when I learned this, because obviously anyone that has been feeling like shit that goes to the doctor and is told everything is normal. And then the psychology part of it comes in where you start thinking, am I crazy? Is there something else wrong? Like I feel like shit, but the doctor keeps saying everything's normal based on my blood work. So basically what I, what I know and what you've just said is that when we go to have a blood test and we get that blood test back, those, that segment, that little section that shows the normal range to abnormal range varies day to day based on whoever took the test on that particular day. So there, whoever's the healthiest of that day is going to set the range of healthy, right? And then whoever's not healthy for that day sets the range of not healthy. Is that how we look at it? Or am I not saying that exactly correctly? No, you're exactly right. But I think, you know, to, to kind of further that yeah. is um, just, just think about what kind of what else happened when you took that blood work. I mean, a good example is I recently, Eric, a few years ago, we had a patient with incredibly high cholesterol levels and it was like, just like shockingly high, you know, I think it was like five or 600, um, you know, in, uh, in US uh, <laughs> measurements. Yeah. But um, when we, we kind of sat down and, you know, that person, you know, everyone was freaked out. The doctor wanted to prescribe him, you know, um, anti-cholesterol, you know, statin drugs right away. And, but we didn't really think of the context. And for him, he always was rushing to the lab in the morning. He was terrified of needles. And so his stress response was always really, really high before getting his uh, cholesterol done. Yep. So we were able to do, we, we actually had a whole situation. We sent a nurse to his house and he had some, uh, his lipids done at a different time in a much more relaxed state and his cholesterol was actually normal. So things like that are so important. You know, another good example is I had a patient once who had really high uh, PSA, which is prostate specific antigen. And um, it was, you know, it was high. It was always, always normal. And then in, you know, a few measurements in a row it was high. And Noah thought to ask him, you know, you know, maybe if anything changed, you know, they sent him straight for a prostate biopsy. And after that, when that came back normal, we actually found out that he had actually taken up cycling and he was riding his bike to the lab every morning and that pressure, you know, in that area for men that oh. was actually increasing his uh, PSA level. 
pupils when he got his blood draw. So, you know, all of these factors are so important to you. Yeah. I also had, uh, back when I worked in a primary care office in the U S, um, they had a patient who they were testing his uh, blood pressure and it was off the chart. They were ready to call it ambulance. Like it was massive. And I said, well, why don't I just take him into a room and do some like nice, slow, deep breathing and see if we can actually get that blood pressure down. Now I will tell you the patient absolutely thought I was talking hocus pocus, magic, hippy dippy doodah, right? Like like he thought I was absolutely whacked out of my ever loving mind. And so the first thing I did was actually explain how breathing can benefit your blood pressure, cholesterol levels, you know, like all of these things. And I did some deep breathing with him for about 20 minutes and his blood pressure dropped right down. And I actually have to say, I had a fan after that. He was a total fan of deep breathing. Which was the opposite from blood pressure meds. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, the great thing was, is in that situation, I was working with medical doctors who absolutely believed in what I was doing, knew that there was research backing it and was like, this is the best thing to try first because this is a do no harm approach. Let's see if this works. And then if it doesn't work, then we can move on to calling an ambulance or whatever else we need to do but you know let's give this a a a try first and then just one more one more topic or one more thing I want to mention about you know when we talk about standard blood work again you know just because we're in the normal range doesn't mean we're healthy because we like if we think about what normal range means it basically just means average and it means average for the area you're you're in so you know blood or um, reference ranges for something like you know, blood sugar, like the cutoff for diabetes can be a little bit different in, or can be different in, you know, they're different in the, in the Southern US states than they are on the West coast. And it's not because the criteria for diabetes has changed. It's just because the, um, the reference ranges are just basically an average of the population. So, you know, so depending on your age, your sex, your lifestyle factors, you know, just because your blood, your blood tests come back as normal, it doesn't mean that that's healthy or optimal for you. Right. I think that's, that's another excellent point. Would this be a good point for me to kind of share my background and why I reached out to you? Oh, yeah, it'd be great if you don't mind. Yeah, not at all. So for you guys that are listening or and or watching the video, I'm happy to share my personal story. I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of details today because um, what I want to do is, again, have Dr. Vanessa back on for us to do a more specialized episode on endometriosis and hormones. but. I do want to share with you my experience of chronic fatigue syndrome. Basically, I don't even, I can't even tell you how far back it started, but what I can say is that it was extremely exacerbated about six years ago when I ended up getting two viral infections and a bacterial infection all at the same time. And prior to these infections, I was feeling really fatigued. I was starting to put on a little bit of weight despite exercising all the time, eating a super clean diet. Now, I will say my job was extremely stressful, but other than having a really stressful job, I was very happy in my life. I did yoga. You know, I did all of the right things since we've titled this episode after, right? Like, why the fuck am I so tired when I'm doing everything right? And I'm doing air quotes for those of you who are listening to the podcast rather than watching it. Um, Yeah, (laughs) got to throw those air quotes in. So I was starting to see some of these symptoms like brain fog and things like that happening. 
But after I ended up getting these uh, multitude of illnesses all at the same time, oh my God, it changed everything. I went from being a little fatigued to not being able to get out of the bed, not being able to think clearly. I would be in the middle of a session trying to say the word depression, which as a psychologist, we probably say that word a million times a day when we're in session. And I'd be like, you know, you know, like when you're really sleepy and you can't get out of the bed and like, you're just not feeling good. And the patient would go, you mean depression? And I'm like, yes, I am a doctor. <laughs> depression, that's what I meant. <laughs> like you couldn't find the words, so fatigued, weight gain. Oh my God. I started piling on the weight despite nothing changing from eating healthy and exercising and all of those things. Um, bloating, massive bloating in my stomach, dizziness, heart palpitations. They checked, they kept doing EKGs on me because heart problems run in my family. They kept thinking that maybe it was my heart, but everything showed up normal on that. Shortness of breath. Again, I have to say in fairness, I was living in Denver, Colorado at the time, which is at altitude. So I was thinking that maybe I was being severely affected by the altitude. Um, but it just, even despite the fact that I was there for three and a half, four years, like it never got, I never got used to the altitude. Again, I'm doing air quotes guys. Um, goodness. So anyway, moving the story forward, I had all kinds of crazy symptoms and I kept going from doctor to doctor, to doctor, to doctor, from specialist to specialist and saying, something is very wrong with me. I don't feel like myself. I'm getting, my depression is getting very unmanageable. My anxiety is going up. I'm tired all the time. I'm having all these pains. I can't breathe. Um, and basically, again, what we just talked about, Vanessa, is every single doctor would do my blood work and say, there's absolutely nothing wrong. At this point, I do, I'm doing my own research, right? And trying to figure out what's wrong with me. And I'm going, you know, I'm pretty sure that I have a thyroid issue. Like I'm hitting every single symptom of a thyroid issue. But every time my blood work came back normal for a thyroid, so again, I'm being told nothing's wrong. Fast forward to moving to New Zealand and I ended up uh, starting to have extremely severe pain, which again, I will talk about this more later, but turns out I had endometri I have endometriosis. And with endometriosis comes chronic fatigue, can also come thyroid issues, kind of all of all of these things that we're talking about today. But I was still told by doctors that there was nothing wrong with me. And after I went through the laparoscopy for the endometriosis, I immediately felt better for about seven months after the laparoscopy. I don't think, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, Vanessa, but like for about seven months, like my energy, I was almost manic. Like my energy was through the roof. I felt absolutely incredible. Like felt like I just dropped right back down into myself and had all this energy and could think clearly and was happy again and everything was great. And then at about the seven month mark, the fatigue started coming back. All of the symptoms started coming back. The pain started coming back. And again, I was told by doctors that there was no way that the endometriosis could have grown back that fast. And there was no reason for my symptoms. So therefore it must be stress induced. It must be all in my head. Again, I'm doing air quotes for those of you who aren't 
um, watching this video. And so then from there, what did I do? I spent thousands of dollars on nutritionists, personal trainers, um, other naturopaths who didn't happen to be doctor of naturopaths. And so thousands of dollars and I would start to feel slightly better, but nothing really worked because nobody was addressing inflammation and hormone imbalances, like all these things that Dr. Vanessa is going to talk about today, um, all, where she's going to go into a lot more detail and thank Lord, baby Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> I found Vanessa who was like, okay, well, this is what we actually need to target first. And then we'll, you know, go from there. And so again, I know that I was said it wasn't going to be a long story and it ended up being a long story, but there's so many more things in there that I, that I want women to know who have endometriosis and who have some of these more chronic illnesses. Uh, but I don't want our episode to get too long. So I will go into that in another episode. Yeah. And just one, one thing I want to add, um, Robin is a huge pet peeve of mine is when doctors say it in, in a dismissive fashion, the stress, you know, it's stress induced and they, they're implying that, oh, okay, it's all in your head. Yeah. But like, we know, you know, the stress, our stress response deeply, deeply affects everything from our thyroid function to our immune system. You know, if we're stressed and having chronically high, you know, cortisol or stress hormones, we our, our immune system is first depressed and then it gets used to having too much um, cortisol around and it flares up. So we get chronic inflammation. So that's the idea of stress being in your head. It's not, no, stress is deeply entrenched in every single cell of your body. So sorry, I'm throw that in. big pet peeve of mine. No, I think that's actually really important to say because as a patient, that's exactly what it feels like. You go in and they're not talking about a physiological response of stress. They are dismissing you as it is a psychological stress where it's all in your head and you just need to be more resilient, which is a fucking pet peeve of mine when people are told to be more resilient, um, which again, I'm not going to go into, I'm not going to go off on a tangent on being resilient because when you are at your absolute fucking wits end and it is all you can do to keep breathing and to try to get to work and to try to, you know, just put one foot in front of the other, you are more resilient than anyone could ever imagine. And so to be told that you need to buck up, be more resilient, um, go to see a psychologist, which again, obviously I'm a psychologist and I am absolutely love to support people through this process, but it's not because they need a psychologist because they're crazy. It's because it's nice to have that support of the psychologist saying, you are extremely resilient and, you know, these are the, these are the ways in which I can support you through your journey. And it's not about making you feel like it's all in your head. Absolutely. You know, back to that as well, like being all in our head versus, you know, in our body and just the interplay between both of those being in chronic um, pain, having chronic fatigue, having an, you know, latent viral infection, having, you know, um, some kind of toxicity in your body that actually drives a stress response. It actually turns on the chemistry of stress, which then has further you know, impacts on inflammation again, on immune system function, on and hormone balance and everything. So it's so intertwined and so frustrating. And, you know, if, if a doctor ever does say, you know, stress is all in your head, you know, even if they were being dismissive, you know, realize that, you know, it's, it's absolutely not, it's in your entire body. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. I think that's important, an important message for us to just keep repeating. 
So I think this will be a good time for us to start to go into a little bit more of the specific details. But before we do that, I think we'll, we'll, we'll start with what is fatigue. And Vanessa, I know you're going to go into actually explaining the physiological, what that means physiologically. But I just want to kind of throw in here real quick. Fatigue is not the same as tiredness. I think that is a really important distinction because there's nothing that pisses someone off with chronic fatigue more than for you to be like, well, I didn't get much sleep last night either. And I'm tired, right? Like that's tiredness is something that goes away when you get more sleep. Fatigue is something that no matter how much sleep you get, you still barely have enough energy to even take a shower. And it is an ongoing feeling over and over and over again for multiple days, weeks, months at a time. You just can't recover after a good night's sleep. So I just wanted to make sure that I stated that for people who are listening to this that may have, may not have experienced chronic fatigue, and that's fantastic, and I hope you never, never do. But if you know someone or you're trying to support someone with chronic fatigue, that's the best way I can kind of describe the difference is even taking a shower feels impossible. Mm. Yeah, and that's such a great distinction and, and kind of it, it leads into kind of cellularly what's going on because, you know, this idea of fatigue is, you know, we talk about it from a kind of physiological point of view. It's to do with the cells, um, energy production, um, machinery and mechanisms not really working. And when that breaks down, you know, the cell can't even do its basic function. So, you know, if that's a muscle cell, it may not be able to pump out lactic acid, you know, and so results in, you know, the symptoms of soreness, or if it's a brain cell, it might not be able to generate, you know, the energy to kind of um, do neurotransmission or to talk to other brain cells. And so we, you know, we have, we can't think of words or we get depressed. And so that's so important that you mentioned, you know, it's not just being tired. Like, you know, we may feel if we just don't get a good night's sleep. Yeah. So the cells are like your little minions is what you're saying. Right. And if your little minions are not working, if they don't have the energy or they're not, there's something getting in their way, they're not able to produce the way that we need them to produce. Correct. Exactly. So each of our cells, we have these tiny structures called mitochondria and there can be hundreds or hundreds up to hundreds of thousands of mitochondria per cell, depending on the type of cell. So cells that require more energy or that, that have a higher energy, energy demand, like say a brain cell or a cardiac cell, you know, heart cell, you know, they're going to have much more of these structures called mitochondria in them. And so what mitochondria are, they're basically, basically your cells, little mini power stations. So they're the little guys that take, you know, the sugars or sometimes the fatty acids from the food we eat and break down. And they take that and they shuffle it around and they, they move electrons around and they basically produce energy or they produce the body's energy currency, which is called, you know, ATP um, from, from the fuel that we put in, um, in the form of the food we eat or the, you know, the fat that maybe we're breaking down. And so these little power stations, these mitochondria in our cells, you know, they're affected by many different things, you know, and they're dependent on, you know, many nutrients for, you know, the process of energy production to occur. And they can be damaged very easily by things like chronic inflammation, by things like heavy metals, um, and so, so as these, these mitochondria, you know, they produce energy, if for some reason their ability to produce energy kind of breaks down or decreases, then, then that's the point at which the cell can't, doesn't have enough energy to do what it's supposed to do. And that's where, you know, over time we'll start to develop clinical symptoms, depending on, you know, what cell type are more affected. Okay. So would we say, cause I always like to do imagery. My patients know I love to do imagery and the more fun, the better, because that's how I learn. And I know a lot of people learn that way. So would you say then the mitochondria are like the pack fan? 
like that they're like they're there to kind of eat the energy and then transfer it to a different station but if the energy's not there they've got nothing to eat to kind of transfer it is that a way of thinking about it it it's yeah it's definitely a good way they basically they take they take the breakdown you know all the food and the 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 sugar and the you know the carbohydrates and the and and um the fats we we eat you know be broken down into simple sugars that the mitochondria use and they basically take that take those fuels and they turn it into to chemical energy right so they would be eating the sugar and then they'd be for lack of a better way of saying it pooping it out into energy <laughs> basically yeah but basically yeah they if there's something wrong, then either they're, you know, eating it and not pooping it back out, or they're not eating it at all. And then you've got excess sugar or excess things. Is that a way of looking at it as well? Um, yeah, that's definitely, definitely one way you could definitely look at it like that. <laughs> that's very colorful. <laughs> Is that an okay way of looking at it? Or am I totally making this shit up as I go? <laughs> No, I like it. I like it. Okay. You can totally correct me and be like, Robin, that's not the appropriate medical way of looking at it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we, that's the way we learn in school, but right. it's, it's like very colorful. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll take colorful. <laughs> okay. I will stop interrupting you and let you, it, what else would you like to say about um, kind of what gets in the way of our, of those little Pac-Men, like what kind of influences you started to mention um talk toxicity and inflammation i don't know if you want to go into that a little bit more yeah i guess probably the first thing to start with is just the idea of nutrient deficiencies because you know so basically the steps in which the the mitochondria take um take their fuel and turn it into energy require different different enzymes and these enzymes you know enzymes are just you know um, different often different proteins that take you know, one substance and turn it to, into another. And all of these enzymes require something called cofactors. And these cofactors are often in the, in the form of minerals and vitamins. So, you know, if we're chronically deficient in certain, certain nutrients, that's where, you know, our cellular machinery that generates energy doesn't work well. Um, and again, you know, different people will have different energy requirements. And so again, looking at something like, you know, iron levels and saying, just because you're in range, you know, for a lot of women, you know, below 40 or even 80, you know, of ferritin, that's just not enough iron to really kind of help to generate that, that energy production. So the first thing to think about is, I think, nutrient deficiencies. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask, because that was something that we came across when we were doing my lab work. And when I say we, I mean, me and you, <laughs> is that my, um, there, my understanding is that Again, iron is, you've got the iron, but the ferritin is what carries the iron into the bloodstream. Is that correct? The fire, uh, so the ferritin, the fire ironton, no, the <laughs> ferritin is actually the storage form of iron. So it's a, it's a good marker of your, yeah. Okay. But interestingly, ferritin is also what we call an acute phase um, inflammatory protein or, or so often, sometimes if we're really inflamed, we may see our, our ferritin very high. And you know, that can, can mislead us. So we could think, oh, we have enough iron for energy production when it's actually just because we're inflamed that um, iron is so high. So can you have can you have an iron level that looks normal, but a ferritin level that doesn't look normal? Or are they both, do you look, would they both be the same? Uh, no, so, so we can look at total blood iron. And that's the amount of iron that's actually in the bloodstream. But your body doesn't like to have too much iron in the bloodstream because iron is is an is basically causes oxidative 
that's stress. It can cause, for lack of better terminology, rusting, and it, it stresses the antioxidant capacity of our body. So our body doesn't like to have free iron running around, and we'll usually, you know, the iron in the bloodstream will usually be reflective of, you know, what people have eaten throughout the day, versus the ferritin is how much of that iron has kind of been stored in the body. And there, there's also another marker called transferritin, and that's our, our, um, our transport form of iron. So that's the little, little boat that basically takes iron from one cell to another. So people will usually look at, you know, um, basically transferritin, transferritin saturation, which is how many little molecules of iron are traveling on each little boat as it's kind of moving around from cell to cell. Our ferritin, which is our stored iron, and also sometimes they'll look at, um, you know, uh, blood iron as well. Another interesting point, though, is it's not just our cells that like iron. A lot of bacteria like iron as well. So if we have, a, have an infection, our body will actually sequester iron. So it'll pull iron out of the bloodstream to keep it away from bacteria. So if you're acutely sick, especially with a bacterial infection, sometimes people will actually look somewhat anemic. And it's really important not to give people iron when they are sick or have a bacterial infection, because that could also feed the you know, bacterial metabolism. Oh, that's really interesting. I never heard that before. Um, the reason I was asking about the, the difference in the ferritin is because I feel like when I, before I found you, when I was going through all of the lab work, you know, from different GP to different GP, they kept telling me that my, my iron was normal, but it wasn't until I, I did the blood work with you where you said, well, we need to look at ferritin. And so mm -hmm. no one, I feel like the GPs either didn't look at the ferritin or again, they were still putting me in a normal category. So I guess that's why my question was, can you have quote unquote, keeping in mind what we talked about earlier about our lab <laughs> levels, can you have a seemingly normal iron that then the GP doesn't even bother to look at the ferritin? Yeah, the frustrating, well, the, well my most, most GPs in fairness will look at ferritin, but the frustrating thing is, you know, the normal range for ferritin in, um, in most, or for us is, you know, between 20 and 300. And that's a big ass range. range yeah. You know, if, if you're 21 or 22 or, you know, even 30, that could be normal. And someone, you know, without taking your entire case could say, oh yeah, that's normal. Kind of send you on your way. Like you're not frankly, you know, iron deficient based on that. But at the same time, you know, for most women, you know, an iron level of below 60 or 80, usually, you know, that won't be enough iron to really help um, produce, you know, produce energy because our mitochondria, one of the enzymes that, that shuffles, you know, one of the electrons to another spot to help produce energy needs the, the enzyme needs iron as a cofactor. So if, if we don't have enough iron for that, we'll usually, you know, energy production will be low in um, without actually seeing, you know, red blood cells um, being low. And so I've, I think read, I've read, and you tell me if you've also come across this, Vanessa, but I've, since moving to New Zealand, I've done quite a bit of research on vitamin deficiencies because mm. I seem to have had more deficiencies after moving to New Zealand than I had in the U.S. And now in fairness, I just want to put out there that I am vegetarian, mostly vegan. So I'm very well aware of my B12 levels and things like that. But I actually wasn't having any problems with my iron levels or that I knew of. <laughs> having any problems with my iron levels in the U.S. And so I did some research on it. And what I came, what I read was that in New Zealand, there is a lot of issue with iron deficiency because the soil doesn't contain um, iron here. And so therefore you, you almost have to get it from some sort of external source 
because that's actually how we get our nutrients is usually from the soil of the food that we eat, not necessarily from the animal that we eat or the plants that we eat, but it comes from the soil. Anyway, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. That's a whole nother <laughs> episode on nutrients and stuff, but is, have you come across that as well? Is that, or is that, does it sound accurate that that would be part of why so many people may be iron deficient? Um, and I know selenium is a big deficiency in the soil in New Zealand, and that's definitely one of the reasons a lot of people are selenium deficient. Um, iron, haven't seen that as much, but I mean, the other big thing in New Zealand is people drink coffee and tea all day long, and I, I do too sometimes. <laughs> and tannins in coffee and tea, they actually can interfere with iron absorption. So, I mean, that could potentially be another okay. factor as well. Okay. And I know that we, we also wanted to make sure that we mentioned vitamin D here as well, because that while most people know about iron, about vitamin D, about B12, I think that, um, again, oftentimes you go to a GP or a primary care doctor and you say, I'm feeling a bit fatigued. I'd like my iron checked. I'd like my B12 checked and I'd like my vitamin D checked. And again, we've already learned that it can come back normal and not be normal, but what are some other things that are important to keep in mind with like a vitamin D deficiency, for example? Actually, before we go to vitamin D, there's two more things I want to mention about B12. Okay. And um, the, the one is, you know, so, so the B12 measurement that we, we normally do in the lab, it, 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 it's, it, it is, a, you know, it is a measurement of B12 in the body, but there's a but it doesn't always kind of tell us, it can, it can sometimes also pick up something called B12 analogs. So these are things that look like B12, don't actually, our cells don't actually use them as B12. So, you know, people can still be B12 deficient, even if the B12 is normal. Um, for me, I like to see B12, not just in range, but over 300 is a good kind of uh, marker to look at. And the other thing is, especially if you're vegan, looking at a marker called methylmalonic acid, um, that's, a, that's a better B12, um, test than serum b12 definitely and is that the mh the mthr fr i all i know is that people call it the motherfucker yeah. <laughs> is that what you're talking the methyl something blah, blah, blah. <laughs> similar it's just a marker of b12 yeah of b12 levels and it's, it's much more accurate than testing serum b12 so if you're a vegan asking your doctor to do a measurement called methylmalonic acid is, is, is just a better, a better indicator. Say that slower so that our listeners can try and write that down or get that. What would, what would be good for them to ask their GP to test? The marker called methylmalonic acid, MMA. Okay. Methylmalonic acid, MMA. Yep. And that's just there's a really good marker to determine if you have B12 deficiency. And just the last thing I'll say, because, you know, everyone thinks of, you know, vegans as being B12 deficient, but it's actually in my practice, the people who have the biggest B12 deficiencies are people that don't produce enough stomach acid. And that's usually people as you get older. So B12, in order to liberate it from food, um, it takes a lot of stomach acid and a lot of, you know, it, it, it's a lot of work for your body. So as we get older, you know, if we are drinking a lot of coffee and teas, if we're not digesting our food properly, um, you know, a lot of people with chronic gut issues have B12 deficiency more so than vegans who I find no to supplement, um, no to supplement B12. Interesting. So going back to vitamin D for a second, uh, would you like to elaborate on the vitamin D? Yeah. So vitamin D, while it's not necessarily associated with energy production, vitamin D is so, so crucial for immune system function. And, you know, if our vitamin D levels are 
are you know abnormal, then we're much more prone to developing autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, potentially even certain cancers. So you know this idea of chronic fatigue and vitamin D is so so important, and you know it's so important to you know obviously to get out in the sun, but it's quite it's quite frustrating when um, you know doctors don't want to test vitamin D because you know there's there's so much research showing that you know vitamin D in, in a certain range, not just in the normal range, is beneficial for for mood, for cognition, like I said, for immune system, for cancer even for cardiometabolic disease. So heart disease risk and also diabetes is, is vitamin D is crucial. And so, um, and so, so even, even if, you know, often, you know, vitamin D in New Zealand isn't subsidized because the assumption is that everyone in New Zealand will be vitamin D deficient. And I think that's, that's something we need to get our heads around. Cause we, I think the assumption is that, oh, the sun is shining. I'm outside. I'm going to get vitamin D, but I'm Unfortunately, we can only actually make vitamin D when the UVA rays coming down from the sun are at a certain angle to our skin. And because we're so far south because of our latitude, this actually doesn't happen, doesn't happen for a, you know, a lot of the year in some places. Like, you know, when I was living in Christchurch, even though the sun was shining half the year, you actually weren't making, you know, vitamin D other than a few hours a day um, at all over there. So, um, so first of all, you know, definitely get your vitamin D level tested. Um, we want to, I mean, ideally for immune system function, the research shows that we want to be probably above 80. Um, and that's a good target to shoot for, for vitamin D. Um, and also, you know, I think it's also important to, met, to mention that, you know, while, while vitamin D supplementation is useful and we don't want to be vitamin D deficient and we want to kind of get our levels up, vitamin D supplementation is not a substitute for getting, you know, adequate and, you know, safe sun exposure. There's so many other benefits to, to sun exposure from, you know, making nitric oxide, you know, when it hits our skin, which causes your know, dilation of blood vessels, it drops our blood pressure, it makes serotonin and happy hormones, you know, happy neurotransmitters. We've got to mention the psychology. We're on the psychology podcast. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. You know, go outside in the morning, we'll make serotonin, we'll feel good, we'll feel happy. You know, that strong midday sun helps to drive dopamine. And when that sun goes away, when we look at the sunset, that serotonin is now made into melatonin and melatonin is one of the crucial, you know, um, or hormones for sleep and also for immune system function overnight. Yeah. Cause if we don't get a melatonin spike at night, which is dependent on, you know, the light during the day, then, you know, our immune system at night doesn't, doesn't increase its, its uh, surveillance, especially against viruses and, and um, cancer cells. So, you know, we love the sun. Sun is so important. One more little, you know, caveat, or one more little aside against this uh, about the sun is, you know, the sun energy also helps to increase mitochondrial energy production. So being out in the sun can actually give you energy because that's sunlight, you know, just the, the energy of the sun and the, um, that can actually help increase the efficiency to, through which your body produces um, chemical energy. So it's, we love the sun. Yeah. Um, and I just want to point out here that, but what you said about the sun, you know, you needing to, the sun needing to be at a certain angle, the UVs needing to come through. And in particular, those of us living in New Zealand, um, again, this goes back to why you may be doing everything right, but you're still feeling fatigued and you're not getting all of those benefits and it's not your fault. We can't help the position of the sun and like where we live. But I definitely, I've been told that by GPs here in New Zealand. And again, I haven't been in the U.S. I haven't lived in the U.S. in a, about five years now. And so I can't remember if vitamin D is something that is run pretty regularly. I believe it is when you have your labs done, which is usually covered by insurance. Um, so I don't know that Americans have the same issue with 
having to ask for vitamin D being run. Whereas what Vanessa was saying in New Zealand is that we, it's not part of the, our panel anymore because we actually have to pay out of pocket for it here in New Zealand. Whereas our other blood work is covered under our, I don't know if you call it social medicine, but under our, our medicine that we have here. Um, and so that's something that I've had to put my foot down and say, I am willing to pay out of pocket. I very much want my vitamin D levels run. And so, you know, it's definitely worth doing, you know, at least, I would say at least once a year, you know, if you live, you know, even further south in the North Island. So if you live in the South Island, you know, even more crucial, there's a really, another really cool resource I want to mention. There's a free app called D-Minder, D-M-I-N-D-E-R, D-Minder. It takes your GPS location and lets you know when the sun is at the right angle um, during the day for you to produce vitamin D. Awesome. And it's a really cool tool where you can kind of see, get a kind of get a sense of throughout the year, just how much of the day you'll actually produce vitamin D. And when the sun is at the right angle, you can click, you know, you can do start sun session. And, you know, before you use the app, it looks at your Fitzpatrick skin, um, skin tone, and it kind of makes an assessment about how, how long it would be safe for you to be in the wow. sun. And then you can also put in your vitamin D blood measurement. And if you, if you use it, vision, if you use it every day and you're really kind of, um, diligent, mindful minor diligent and uh, and basically it'll it'll it can track and it can it'll estimate you know your vitamin d blood levels um as you use the app and it'll tell you like as, as when you're in the sun and you're using the app how much your your vitamin d production so like you know i was outside this morning and i was using my d minder and i made you know twenty thousand i use vitamin d and you can kind of watch the little dial go around it's a really amazing a very very cool tool so highly recommend that one. Oh, that's super cool we like our free apps <laughs> yeah yeah minder yeah, cool. And another uh, nutrient that you mentioned was iodine or iodine if you're in the US. <laughs> yeah, so iodine or iodine is so, so important. And it's, it's another really or big, you know, very common nutrient deficiency we see in, in New Zealand. And, you know, obviously iodine is present in, you know, in seafood. And so, you know, vegetarians, vegans, you know, people who are not consuming seafood or, you know, because our diets are generally don't include sea vegetables like our seaweeds. Hmm. Sorry, my dad, was, uh, I grew up, my parents were macrobiotic, which ah. is a Japanese way of eating. And we had a lot of seaweed. My dad's a doctor. He's so into sea, seaweed. Yeah. He used to say, don't call it seaweed. It's a sea vegetable. Be respectful. So <laughs> well, <laughs> that in great. Yeah. I, I just have to say on a side note, I have tried so hard to like seaweed, sea vegetable for your dad oh, out there. <laughs> and I cannot like it. I fucking hate it. It's like licking and I love the ocean, but to me, it's like licking the bottom of the ocean. I just cannot do it. So I am probably very deficient in iodine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so like, so, you know, if we're, if we get, you know, frank deficiency of iodine, you know, to the point where, you know, it's clinically manifested, it's, it's something called goiter. So we get, you know, the swelling in our neck. Okay. And you know, that, that's pretty much been reduced or eliminated with the advent or with the incorporation of, of ionized uh, table salt in New Zealand. But for many people or, you know, a lot of health conscious people, you know, they're not using iodized sea salt. So, you know, kelp and sea veggies are so important. But, um, you know, a lot of us, you know, we actually, we don't get enough um, iodine from, you know, iodized sea salt. And, you and know, this can matter. Sorry to interrupt you. I just want to say real quick, because that was something I didn't know until I saw a nutritionist. Sea salt doesn't automatically have iodine in it. You have to get a sea salt that has that in it, right? So it should be on the label, iodized sea salt or iodized table salts or what have you, correct? Yeah, exactly. Or like I said, get the sea veggies in. Yeah. <laughs> 
a little bit of kelp in your diet. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but iodine is so so important for thyroid function. And I think we're gonna probably do lots of episodes on hormones later on. But our thyroid is basically the little gland that produces the hormones that set our metabolic rate. So basically the hormones that tell our cells how much energy to produce. And if we don't have enough thyroid hormones because we're deficient in iodine, then those little power stations don't make enough energy. So, you know, if our if we're iodine deficient, then that'll also deeply impact our, our thyroid function. And thyroid function is so, so important for um, in, in chronic fatigue as well. Oh, and the last thing I wanna say, iodine is so crucial for women's health. So mm. breast health is often tied to, um, to iodine and iodine deficiency. So if we don't have enough iodine, we tend to produce too much or we tend to not be able to get rid of estrogen and we have high estrogen levels. And a really common symptom of, um, of iodine deficiency is, you know, issues with a fibrocystic breast mm. or kind of lumpy or, you know, estrogen dominance. So, yeah. And I, I think that's really, um, important because especially nowadays, and again, we're going to do probably multiple episodes on hormones and, and women's health, but nowadays we have, I think probably at un unheard of rates of high estrogen levels in women due to various reasons, things like perfumes and makeup and all of this stuff that is impacting our body's ability to get rid of that excess estrogen. And also, isn't there quite a bit of research that ties um, higher estrogen levels into higher cancer rates for women? Is that correct? Absolutely. Especially obviously with uh, breast cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but that's interesting. I did, I knew about the excess estrogen, but I didn't know how iodine played into that. So I think that's a really interesting takeaway for women or men who are listening to this to chat with your females in your life, you know, about, um, iodine, because it is, it's really simple. It's a simple, just purchasing iodized salt or eating your sea vegetables, you know, like that's, that's an easy thing to incorporate. You know, one, one of my favorite ways to incorporate, um, you know, an iodine rich food into our diet is um, you can often find like kelp sprinkles at the, at the grocery store. And, you know, these are a great source, obviously of iodine, but also of selenium often. And those are two nutrient deficiencies we see commonly in New Zealand. So, you know, if you don't mind the taste, I know someone here doesn't like them. I love them. Table salt, you know, at least a couple of times a week with, you know, some kelp, kelp sprinkles. Yeah, it just it's not it's not working for me, Vanessa. <laughs> the salt is not working for me. I and again, I want so badly to be the good vegan, good vegetarian that's like chomping on seaweed, but just not gonna happen. <laughs> so I have to work with you to get mine elsewhere. <laughs> you can also get a liquid iodine in other forms as well. But I guess the one caveat to mention is, you know, some people, especially if you have um, hyperthyroid or different autoimmune thyroid conditions you can be very sensitive to iodine. So, you know, you know, I definitely don't recommend taking, you know, high dose iodine or high dose um, iodine supplementation or, or, you know, the kelp tablets, you know, that's something you want to look at your thyroid function first to, to determine if that's right for you. But, you know, for most, for the vast majority, 95% of people incorporating iodine in your food in the form of a little bit of seaweed a couple times a week is a really good idea. Yeah. I, I think that is important to say that when we're talking about um, which we really haven't talked a whole lot about supplementation, but obviously we're talking about that at the moment is this is why we're saying it's very important to work alongside your doctor of naturopath and your GP to have these blood work, the blood work run, because you definitely don't want to overdose on iodine. And some of these 
you, you can't overdose on, you'll just pee them out. And then others you can, and iodine is one of those that, again, it's not frequent and it's not, you know, it's pretty rare that this would happen, but it is something just to consider. Also, when we say, you know, notice that Vanessa's saying a couple times a week, she's not saying pour it all over your food. Multiple- not like every meal. <laughs> <laughs> so someone, you know, I just want to make sure I say that. So someone's like, I heard a podcast that I, I love salt. So I could just take this salt and salt everything all over my food because that gave me permission to use salt. <laughs> sea veggies. Yeah. And I mean, last, last thing about sea veggies, you know, they should be kind of part of our diet, but also you got to keep in mind source because sea, sea vegetables, they tend to bioaccumulate heavy metals and also potential radioactive uh, material, you know, probably keeping to New Zealand based, um, you know, sea vegetable sources. So, you know, Pacific, we say brands, Pacific Harvest is a New Zealand company. They make a lot of really clean our uh, seaweeds, but I would be just, just a little careful about, you know, using, um, you know, dried seaweeds and stuff from countries that may not be as clean. Okay. So if they're in the U S looking at where the seaweed is coming from would be important. And it also, I would imagine organic, would that be something that you would want to have, or does that not really give enough details? Yeah, I mean, in terms of sea veggies, they, they are kind of cultivated domestically, but most of them are still wild harvested. So usually you wouldn't see organic as a label, probably as much, unless, unless they were grown, um, kind of cultivated. Okay. Okay. We've talked about vitamin D. We've talked about iodine, iodine. We've talked about uh, your mitochondria. We talked about kind of all of this stuff. What else would be things for us to consider that may be impacting or kind of feeding chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, back, you know, in terms of nutrient deficiencies, I wouldn't say these, yeah, these kind of perpetuate chronic fatigue. They're they're not a cause necessarily, but, you know, um, another really, really important nutrient that we should definitely mention, kind of we talked about the vitamins or, or, and then iodine kind of moving to minerals, but another really important one for chronic fatigue that I see deficient in a lot of people are, is magnesium. Hmm. So magnesium, so important, you know, without enough magnesium, you know, we don't have proper energy production. And then without enough magnesium, we can't, our body can't relax um, deep enough. So we kind of had this, often people kind of present with, you know, fatigue, but be kind of tired, but wired kind of feeling. Absolutely. And I, I used to, when I worked with, uh, specifically worked with chronic pain patients, I talked about magnesium all of the time because it's so important uh, for muscle spasms. You know, if you're having a lot of muscle spasms, magnesium can be of significant benefit. Also mood. Like if you're deficient in magnesium, you're, you're not going to be in a very good mood either. And so, but what I, what I do want to ask you about which was, I didn't quite know as much about as I know now is that there's different types of magnesium. And so Mm -hmm. is there a particular type or would you recommend different types depending on what people's symptoms are? Yeah, well, when it comes down to magnesium, obviously magnesium is a, you know, it's a mineral and it's, you know, it's, it's an electrolyte in our body. So, you know, it, it, it helps us, you know, with muscle contraction, with neurotransmissions and nerves talking to each other with mood, with everything else. Um, but magnesium in terms of, of the form is going to be kind of, I would, I definitely see it as dependent on what's going on. Okay. So magnesium generally comes chelated. So it comes stuck to different things and they're usually stuck to, di- it usually comes stuck to different um, amino acids. Um, before we get into the different types, the one type of magnesium, I would say you probably don't want to be taking, it's the cheapest form and it's, you know, it's, it acts as a great laxative, 
but it's not that it's not that well absorbed. It's magnesium oxide. Okay. So a lot of your, you know, inexpensive in you know, a grocery store supplements will use magnesium oxide as a, as a form. And, you know, if you think about what oxide is, oxide is a free radical. It causes oxidative stress. So, you know, it, it's, it's not the best, best form. Like I said, you can use magnesium oxide in large amounts as a laxative or bowel prep. So it will help you go to the toilet because yeah. magnesium oxide is so poorly absorbed that it stays in the gut. And when it's in the gut, magnesium pulls more water into the gut and that causes kind of diarrhea or loosening of the stools. But in terms of in terms of what the good forms are, um, you know, generally again, it depends on what's going on. You know, um, in terms of muscle relaxation, um, you know, I really like magnesium glycinate. You know, glycine or bisglycinate. Glycine is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It also has an additional calming effect, in addition to the calming effect of magnesium. So it's a great one for muscle pain for sleep. Um, magnesium malate is a really great form for muscle pain. Okay. Malic acid is you know, is another, um, something else that helps with uh, muscle function. Um, you know, for cardiovascular health, there's a form called magnesium taurate, which is bound to taurine. Taurine is, taurine is another amino acid that the, the heart uses for, for contraction. So that's kind of double, you know, double use for the heart. Um, what are the magnesium? There's a really interesting form they're using a lot in um, psychiatry or mood disorders called yep. magnesium threonate. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have that one. Yep. Yeah. And that's a really good form because it, goes straight into the brain and crosses the brain barrier really easily. So I don't know if that one's as easy to find right now, though. Um, I'm not sure how easy is that one, that, that one to find. Um, it's not, it's not generally easy to find in like health or over the counter. I mean, not, not health food stores, but like grocery stores or pharmacies, but really good health food stores will have it, you know, naturopaths or naturopathic doctors will, will often have it. Okay. Um, integrated minded GPs will, will kind of know where to find it. Yeah. Form. I mean, the other, you know, another form that's not bad and it's really widely available, you know, if you're on a budget, magnesium citrate, hmm. you know, it's not terrible, you know, that that works pretty well, you know, generally, and that's probably the lowest cost. And then, you know, if we're talking about kind of, you know, just getting your magnesium levels up quickly, I really love magnesium sulfate too, which is Epsom salts. You know, having a, having a bath with two cups of Epsom salts, especially if you don't like taking supplements a few times a week, will really replenish your magnesium levels quite well. Absolutely. What about, um, cause I've even seen now, you know, lotions with magnesium in them. Yeah. Obviously we want to be careful that we're not getting a lotion that's full of toxins like yeah, yeah. and things like that. But if we're going, if we're going natural, like a natural lotion with magnesium, that would be another way of getting it as well. Correct. Yeah, so usually the um, the transdermal forms are magnesium chloride. So it's basically almost like concentrated seawater kind of minerals. Yeah, basically. So that that works quite well. I can't tolerate it. I find it really itchy. I, I do like like I magnesium gels, but yeah, people do. I, I'm the same way. I cannot do the lotion. It makes me itch until like I almost scratch until I bleed. I cannot take it. Um, so I back in the U.S. there was a supplement that I used to like that you could drink and it had a nice flavor. It was like a lemonade flavor and you'd get it at uh, whole foods or any kind of grocery stores that were a bit more organic. And it was called calm. Oh, I remember calm. Yeah. It was fantastic for anxiety as well as when I was healing from a torn ACL and I was having muscle spasms after the surgery, the medication they gave me did nothing. I took that magnesium and I had no more muscle spasms. Like it was unbelievable. I'm not sure what 
type of magnesium calm has in it. But um, that's another thing. If you're in the US, another version rather than putting the lotion on, or if you're like me and you've moved into a really nice place, but it doesn't have a bathtub anymore, which makes me very sad. I can't take my my baths anymore. Um, that's another another way of possibly getting your magnesium. Yeah, actually, that's a, that's a great point. And I think the next thing we're going to talk about is, is gut function. So a lot of times, especially, you know, I don't want to pick on grocery store and pharmacies, but it, the magnesium tablets are these hard, big tablets, unless you're, you know, you have a lot of stomach acid and you're, you know, you're in a relaxed state, you may not be breaking those down enough to absorb the magnesium. So that's why, you know, the calm, I think it is magnesium citrate. It's like an effervescent lemon flavor yes. powder. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually quite a good form because it's, you know, when you mix it with water, it liberates magnesium and you can kind of absorb it very easily. So yeah, I'm a big fan. Of and I think that's another important point, kind of going back to doing everything right and it not fucking working, is if you are, if you're already taking magnesium and you're taking a supplement and it doesn't feel like it's benefiting you, um, it could be that maybe it has to do with your stomach acid and you're not able to absorb it or I forget the other point I was going to make, um, or maybe it's not the type of magnesium, you know, maybe look at it and see if it was one of those that you were like, eh, it's not necessarily, you know, the most helpful, maybe mm -hmm. consider changing the way that you're getting the magnesium. Yeah, definitely. And you know, that's another point just want to make almost like the reference ranges, just because you're taking something doesn't mean you're absorbing it. Yeah. And you know, full disclosure, we often like to pick on the pharmaceutical industry, but you know, the supplement industry as well has a lot of problems. And I'm not, not knocking anyone. I hope my mom doesn't hear this, but I grew up, my mom owned, uh, my mom had the GNC franchise in the Bahamas. We grew up and, you know, I love I GNC. GNC. I used to spend a lot of money at GNC. <laughs> <laughs> But they do have a lot of products that I wouldn't recommend. So, yeah. you know, a lot of, you know, coal tar derived, you know, B complex vitamins and, you know, and not just vitamin C, you know, CVS and all these kind of, you know, retail um, companies. And so oftentimes just because we're taking something doesn't mean one, they're in the right form for our body to absorb and utilize or for our body to utilize. And two, that, you know, we might not even be absorbing them. So yeah, it's really important, you know, not to write off, you know, a supplement because you've tried it, but, you know, working with someone who understands form and dosing, you know, dose is a big one as well. You know, so many people, you know, come to me, though, I take this and I take this, but I'm just like, you know, they're taking a fraction of what they actually need. And so they're not seeing the benefit. And so they're writing off, you know, all nutrient or, you know, all supplements just because of that. Yeah, exactly. All right, lovelies. I hope you have enjoyed this episode so far. As mentioned previously, we will be back with more amazing information related to chronic fatigue. In the meantime, if you're living in New Zealand or Australia and think I might be a good fit for you as a psychologist, please email me at notafloatinghead at gmail.com. Also, if you have questions or topics you'd like to be discussed, you can also email me at notafloatinghead at gmail.com. For funny, informative videos and pics, you can follow me on Instagram at notafloatinghead. If you're living in New Zealand or Australia and would like to reach out to Dr. Vanessa about a consultation, you can go to her website, which I'll also include in the show notes, but her website is n equals one dot life. So that's the number one for those of you that are listening and not watching. So her website is n equals one dot life. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go have an adventure.